Welcome back to Wikgift Conversations, the podcast where we talk to staff and to pupils about topics that are relevant to you. In this episode, we're exploring two unconnected subjects that both happen to be areas of expertise for one person at Wikgift. Marianne Ofner talks to us today about EAL, that's English as an Additional Language. But she also talks to us about anger management and how she works with all the boys across school on that subject. We find out why Marianne enjoys working in both these areas so much, how it helps the boys at Wikgift, and what it also teaches her too. That's all coming up in this episode, so come with me now as I take you into the world of EAL first, and then into anger management with today's guest, Marianne Ofner. Marianne, thank you for being here and welcome to this episode of the podcast. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you very much. I've just uh, finished teaching my German A-level class, my Spanish IB class, and quite a different selection of EL classes, um, which is great because it's a great variety of subjects and syllabuses, and it's wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Variety is one of those great things, isn't it, in any job, doesn't matter what we do, but whenever we have variety, we always tend to really enjoy that and appreciate that. Tell me why, I'm guessing variety is important to you based on how you're responding right now. Tell me why you feel variety is a really good thing for you. It keeps you alive. It keeps you mentally alive and uh, open-minded, I think. Um, I mean, here, for example, at Wicked, if I look at uh, my EAL boys, uh, EAL students, they come from all over the world. And for me, this is like um, reciprocal learning. I learn from them and they learn from me. So when we talk about culture, for example, and you have, I still remember my first EAL class here at Wicked. You had... Um, you had a, a Japanese student, it was a Hungarian, uh, a boy from Georgia, um, a Romanian, and you talk about superstitions. You can imagine what comes out of it. And I still remember the Japanese student telling me, oh, no, in Japan, we don't have a fourth floor in any of the hotels because num the number four is an unlucky number and it means death. And I still remember this. And you learn so much from them in terms of culture, their values, their traditions. And it's fabulous. That's what I really, really enjoy. Gives me a real kick. I never realized that at all about Japan. So even today, I'm learning something as well, which is fantastic. So, so really there you good. Are. <laughs> uh, Marianne, tell me a little bit about your background. What part of the world did you grow up in? I'm detecting a bit of a non-English mm -hmm. accent coming through here. So where did you yeah. grow up and what was your own experience of your own education like? I'm Austrian. Uh, I grew up here just outside Graz, the second largest city of Austria. I went to a state school um, and I think from primary school onwards, I always wanted to become a teacher. So um, everything I did was geared towards that. So my education, I went to uh, university, I did history and English um, uh, at university and um, academia was really easy for me. So I went to, I wanted to do something more. So I went and did my PhD in the States then. And um, I really enjoyed that. And also that's where I got to know the Latin, got introduced to the Latin American culture. And that was fabulous. And that's when I really started learning Spanish. And, and that's what I do now here. I, I teach Spanish here. And then I came to the UK as a, a lecturer and worked at the University of Surrey. And I was really, really lucky there because the head of faculty let me do more than just language teaching. So I was able to teach uh, seminars, on uh, sort of history seminars and linguistic seminars. And I'm really appreciative that he let me do that. But yes, yeah, so I've been in the UK now for 
30 years. 30 it's years. Gosh, time, yeah. wow. It is a long time. It is a long time. And so how old were you when you moved from Austria to, I think you said the US first of all? Oh, uh, just after I finished my degree. So about 22. I did that. Um, I, I spent a year in the States and finished and off my PhD in Austria. And I came to the UK in 95. Okay, right, right. And 94, what, actually, 94. 94. And what part of America were you in? In Athens, Ohio. And Ooh. the reason why I went there is because um, my university had a, a, a link to uh, the linguistic department at, at that university. It's a very small part of the world, but it had a very high population of international students, which was fantastic. Mm. Mm. You get to know so many, again, the cultural introduction to to the world. It was unforgettable. <laughs> and then after your time at the University of Surrey, what did you do between then and working at Whitgift? I came straight to Whitgift. Oh, okay. So I've actually been at Whitgift um, for a long time. It's 25 years this year. Gosh, yes. wow, Marianne, that is a long time. <laughs> is there anyone else who's been there that long? Yes, there's a couple of people. Yeah, there's a handful of people still Still here, yes. But the good thing about Wigift is it gives you the flexibility because I did all sorts of different things. Uh, I came here as, a, as the head of bilingual studies where we taught history and geography in the language, in French, German and Spanish. Then I became head of Spanish uh, and now I'm the coordinator of EAL. So it's, it's different things and it gives you, Wigift gives you, gives you room to grow and, and do different things. We're going back to the variety, which I appreciate. Now, of course, you know, Whitgift is a great place. The UK is a great place to be, but equally, Austria is a great place to be as well. So what was it that brought you to the UK after you were in America instead of returning to Austria? I think um, I had to return to Austria for a while because obviously if they sponsor you to do a PhD in America, you have to then work a couple of years in Austria. But um, as a teacher, uh, it was very difficult at that stage to get a job because there were so many graduates who wanted to go into teaching. So uh, I looked uh, abroad and England, of course, having studied English is the nearest thing. Um, and I always wanted to live in England. I, f I find the English culture interesting and very different to the Austrian culture. OK, well, let's talk about EAL then at Whitgift. First of all, what is EAL? I mean, if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I've heard that acronym before, but I don't even know what it is. Just in a nutshell, tell us what EAL is. So EAL stands for English as an Additional Language. So we are catering for those uh, international students who do not have English as their first language. And we we create a very bespoke uh, timetable for them, uh, um, if they need help, depending on their, their level of English, mm -hmm. we help them with everything. It could be we go into an economics lesson and help them with the economics, um, the terms and the jargon that they're not familiar with. Uh, or we prepare them for the IELTS exam, which is what they need to go to a British university. Or we help them with grammar or writing. Whatever they need, it's very, very bespoke. And that's one of the joys of teaching them. So... EAL is not just uh, helping them with their English, but because they're such bespoke lessons, you very often uh, get to know them more on a personal level because they're very small lessons and they're opening up to you. So I think the EAL is very much linked with a pastoral aspect as well. And I think um, I can be quite helpful in that uh, in that respect because I went to a boarding school as well, only for a very short time. So I know what they're going through and I live as a foreigner in a different country. So I can, I'm very empathetic. I can understand the issues that they 
they face. So what are some of those issues that they typically face and, and issues that you can understand and, and appreciate? I think it's, uh, you know, when you when you move, let's say, from Hong Kong to the UK, then you're not familiar with the British school system. Uh, you live in a boarding house. It's a different, different food. You, you, you're away from your friends and from your family. It's just everything is new. And of course, it's constant English when when you didn't have that before. So it's not just the, the linguistic level is quite challenging, but also the friendship level, the fact that you're missing your family and your friends is a lot to uh, digest at the very beginning uh, for, for our students. And I think it's important then. And then as a teacher, you just need to be aware that they have their linguistic barriers um, that you need to adapt to at the very beginning. And, and I imagine that, the, that these boys come from a variety of different countries, but is there a majority that come from one particular region in the world? I think uh, at the moment we have quite a lot from Asian countries. Uh, a lot of our international students come from there. We used to have a big music program, so they came from Eastern Europe. But yeah, the majority at the moment come from Asia. And then roughly how many boys at Whitgift are, are involved in the EAL programme? It's about 35 that we actively support, uh, but we're, we have about 90 on our register, but there's 35 that we give very bespoke lessons to. Okay, okay. So one of the things you mentioned, Marianne, is I think you said you'd go into an, an economics lesson with them. Do you mean physically being with them in that economics lesson mm, and then showing yes. them things at the same yes. time as they're learning them in economics? Yes, or we, t we take them out and then we just work on um, business vocabulary or economics related vocabulary. Uh, the teachers are very good here. They give us sometimes um, the syllabus beforehand or some text to help them basically access the text. And we explain the vocabulary beforehand. Mm -hmm. But normally our students have a very good level of English. So, um, but yeah, occasionally we, that's what we have to do. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about those levels of English. I mean, when some of the boys first arrive at Whitgift, I mean, what sort of level of English do they have at that stage? So we give them uh, an assessment and we want them to have a level of a B2, B21, B22. And this is based on a common European framework. This is uh, an international criteria. And if they have this level, they can access our curriculum. But if they don't, then this is where we step in and help them uh, help them along. So you mentioned this B2, B2, one. Uh, what exactly is that then? Tell us more about that. So that is a sort of an intermediate level of English. So I'm talking about lower intermediate and upper intermediate. It's, it goes from A1, which is beginner English, A1, A2, B1, B2, and then C1, C2 is native uh, speaker level. So this is how it is categorized. And our boys fall into the B1, B2 level. I see. Okay. Of English. Mm-hmm. So when people are learning English and it's not their first language, what are some of the typical things that they tend to struggle with? And, and I'm going to guess that depending on where they come from in the world, they might struggle with different things. I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong because, there. Yes, of course. Yeah, because it's the interference of the mother tongue, isn't it? I make very different mistakes uh, from somebody whose native language is uh, Mandarin because I interfere from, from German and make these type of mistakes. A Spaniard makes different mistakes. So it's um, the English language is very difficult in the sense with the little prepositions, whether you say get in, get, get on. Uh, it's all these little things with different meanings or the, um, the tenses are quite difficult for, for, for some speakers. Every, every culture has different issues and that's really based on, on their mother tongue. And do you find that you tend to pick up 
little elements of, of other languages yourself because you're teaching people who are from these different parts of the world? I mean, I notice the, uh, the errors that a particular speaker makes because you get, you get familiar with that. But I wouldn't say so because I don't speak Mandarin, so I can't actually... I don't understand where they're coming from because it's so different. I think if I spoke the language with Spanish, I know why a Spanish speaker makes that mistake in English because I speak Spanish myself. But if I if you don't speak the language, then um, no, it's very difficult to anticipate where why they make the mistake. So tell me more then about what it's like working with these international students. You gave the example of the boy from Japan explaining about the fourth floor and buildings not having four floors. Tell me about why you enjoy so much working with international students. I think it's the cultural and intellectual exchange. That's what I enjoy most. It's the learning from each other. The You're building a bridge um, uh, between different cultures or various cultures. And that is, so, uh, that is so pleasant. And it's a very gratifying experience. And of course, it's very rewarding to see them progress in English and then see how well they, they speak and, and uh, express themselves. I also enjoy the fact that we offer some some cultural program for them where we take them up to see the globe or we take them up to see the houses of parliament or we take them for cream tea to introduce them to the british culture and show them how wonderful it is and how different it is and when you do things like you know take them to the globe is that all 30 35 boys at one time that you take or or do you take different boys at different times of the year on these different trips i think for the, the house of parliament for example we only took the sixth form because um we thought it would be more relevant for, for the older, more mature boys, whereas the globe, we took everybody, mm-hmm. everybody who wanted to come. And uh, yeah, fantastic. And then what's it like for you then seeing some of the boys arriving? And, and, and I imagine that sometimes their English is not very good at all. And then after their time at Whitgift, uh, after a number of years, you probably see an, a very noticeable transformation that they've gone through. How does that make you feel? Proud. Absolutely proud that they have achieved it. I remember one musician coming in year nine and he spoke very little English. And by the end of the sixth form, he was so fluent and it was such a pleasure to see him progress and and just talk about everything that he wanted to and pass the exams and move on to the um, to the Royal um, College of Music and and do what he wants to do with his life. Uh, and we helped him along step by step to to achieve that. And that's such a rewarding, gratifying experience. And that's yeah, it's it's just you, you won't forget. You won't forget certain boys because of that. You see them progress so much. Yeah, I can imagine. I really can. OK, so aside from EAL and very, very and very separate to that, I understand you also do some work in anger management at Whitgift. Tell us all about what that side of things is. I got into this sort of a bit more the pastoral um, aspect uh, a couple of years ago and I wanted to be a counsellor and I started to do lots of um, um, a year's worth of uh, introduction to counselling skills. And then the more and more I, I got into the different courses, I realised anger management is really what I think I can help with most. And what I do there is um, I've got an array of different techniques that I've picked up from from all the courses I went to, whether it's a gestalt therapy or whether it's a neuro-linguistic programming. And this is what I'm trying to use. So I'm, te- I'm teaching the boys to recognise their trigger, uh, what triggers them off when they be, before they become angry, um, make them aware of the physical symptoms, how they can recognize it, and then give them basically a toolbox. And they can choose um, 
what techniques work for them. And yeah, and hopefully, um, and I think uh, I've been successful with some of the boys and it's, it's something for the rest of their life. They can give the fall back on these techniques to control their anger. And then again, we're talking about reward. It's, uh, it's rewarding to see them being able to use it. So you talk about these triggers. What kind of triggers do the boys at Whitgift or, or boys in general tend to encounter? I think uh, it's it's very individual. Uh, a trigger can be a comment from uh, a derogatory comment comment from from one of your friends. It could be a gesture. It could be lots of things that that triggers you that makes you angry. And we all get angry, and angry anger is normal. But it's just the extent whether you can control it or whether you you feel you have to lash out verbally or physically. That's that's the difference. Uh, that's what you need to rein in and um, to understand what the trigger is and to deal with it to avoid the lashing out. That is the that is the key. So maybe then for some of the parents that are listening to this, I mean, adults, of course, need a bit of anger management as well from mm. time to time. Oh, yes. What are the kinds of things that we can be exercising ourselves in order to apply some of this learning to our own lives? I think realising what your trigger is, realising what your physical symptoms are, and then basically it could range from mindfulness, it could range, uh, it could uh, meditation could help you, relaxation techniques could help you. Or uh, things that you take from, I've taken a very helpful technique from neuro-linguistic programming, which is called anchoring, where you create a very relaxing, beautiful picture in your mind, for example. And every time you're angry, you try to recall this picture in your mind and it can calm you down and distract you from, from the moment. I think these are sort of little techniques that you can use yourself. Everybody can use them for various different purposes. A friend of mine one time said to me, it's always good to give people the benefit of the doubt when you don't know what's really happening. So if you're in the car and somebody cuts you up on mm. a roundabout, it's mm. very easy to get yes. you know, instantly very cross yes. with that person. But, yes. you know, of course, we don't yes. know their situation. So. Maybe they're on their way to hospital to, to visit their, their, yeah. their dying father and mm -hmm. this could be the last time they ever see them. Mm -hmm. Do you think that kind of thing mm -hmm. helps? Absolutely. I give a very similar example to the boys where, you know, uh, when they go walk down the corridor and they, they, they push into you and they get very angry sometimes but if they if they see for example imagine that this person was blind and it wasn't just deliberate it was just an accident you would treat the person very different you would treat the whole incident very differently and I think that's what the boys need to understand you don't know what it's not it's not deliberate it can be just accidental and that's what they need to understand mm. Mm. And I think one of the images that works really well for the boys, if you imagine a, pu a puppeteer holding all the strings, and um, this is the anger, and you are the one tangling the puppet. And um, to imagine that somebody can, can manipulate you, that anger can manipulate you to such an extent that you do exactly what that anger wants you to do, is a very powerful image. You don't want to give that power to anything or to anybody. And I think lots of boys, once they, they have this image in their mind, that anger should not be controlling them. They should be in control. That really helps some of the boys to see that image. And I give them a physical image of, of, a, of the anger controlling a person. Mm. So this is very different then to your other hat in Whitgift of, of working with the EAL students. 
how is it that you got into this side of life as well? I think I, I, I quite um, I enjoy doing different things and and broadening broadening my horizon. And that was one of the things getting. I think it started off with the count the introduction to counselling skills, where you see how important listening skills are, how important certain things are in your life to um, to help people along. And I think that was just the next step. And um, it's just, again, another rewarding experience. I, I seem to thrive on rewarding experiences, but I really, really enjoy that. Helping, whether it's language teaching or whether it's English teaching or whether it's uh, anger management, it's just rewarding and gratifying to see somebody progress. Well, the re- rewarding experiences, and we, we, you also mentioned variety in there as well, which kind of takes us back to the start. Mm, definitely. Marianne, we probably need to bring this to a close now, but if anybody wants to find out more about EAL or about anger management at Whitgift, where's the best place they should go? Well, they can come and talk to me anytime they would like to. We've got a wonderful EAL department um, here at Whitgift. I've got two more colleagues, Beata and Dave, uh, and Dave Bates. So we are very open-minded, ready to help, so feel free to contact us. We're very happy to help. Fantastic. Well, look, Marianne, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to us today, for explaining to us how this world of EAL works and also this other world of anger management. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. So that was Marianne Orfner talking to us about EAL and also anger management. Thank you again for your time, Marianne. It's really good talking to you. But that's it for this episode. Our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.